0: As an architect, you design for the present with an awareness of the past for a future which is essentially unknown, said Norman Foster, a key figure in the world of architecture. And that made me think, isn't that something we ought to do for our lives as well? Quite interestingly, the guest for this episode, David Dunphy, is an acclaimed architect and also a meditation practitioner and coach who helps people adopt meditation to enable them to design a life that is more even-keeled. David first became interested in art at an early age. He won competitions for drawing in school and by the time he reached high school, he was encouraged by instructors to pursue independent study in the arts in multiple mediums since the curriculum was not set up for someone of his abilities. His father had started architecture school in the University of Houston and switched to advertising at the prompting of friends and always regretted it. So Dave took that as his cue to fulfill his father's unrealized dream and pursue a career in architecture. Though he had never even taken a drafting course before college, he found his niche and thrived in the application of artistic talent to three-dimensional space. After graduating from the architecture program at the University of Kansas with honors, David moved to California to start his career. He designed his first hotel, a Western in Rancho Mirage, California, and due to a love for their rich complexity, decided to specialize in hotels and continues in that vein today. After having a master with 35 years of professional experience in architecture, interior design and project management for major hotel, timeshare and housing projects all over the globe. Today, David is a principal at Studio HBA, a hospitality architecture and interior design firm with offices in Los Angeles and Miami. In 2017, he was awarded a National Gold Key Award from Boutique Design Magazine for the best focused hotel in the country in a competition with 700 other participating entries bigger than all of his professional accomplishments is the accomplishment that despite doing the kind of work that he has done that too in a deadline driven sector he has successfully carved out time for family and himself and i'm sure there's a lot to learn from someone who has lived a balanced life who has demonstrated that a good work life balance can exist who has exhibited that professional success and spirituality can coexist Let's go ahead and welcome David Dunphy on the show. Hi, David, how are you?
1: I'm very good, Monica, thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on the program. So David, you've been a meditation practitioner for about 39 years now. So take us through your journey in meditation, sharing how it shaped you or helped you evolve.
1: Well, you know, I I first became interested in meditation After graduating from architecture school uh, at University of Kansas, I moved out to San Diego, California, and, and I was very interested in meditation, but really didn't know how to go about it. And so I began to read voraciously about the subject. And after doing that for probably close to a year, I just became frustrated because as would become apparent to most people, you don't learn about meditation from reading about it. So um, I I basically decided that I I had to make a step and do something about this other than just reading about it. And fortunately for me, I had a roommate that pulled a flyer off of a bulletin board at a local college. And there was a class called The Literature of Self-Transformation. And the basic premise of the class was that you would go to the class Um, go and explore a meditation practice, come back and report to the class about it. So we had someone uh, representative of of Sahaja Yoga meditation came to the class. And um, after practicing for a relatively short period of time, I had an experience that my rationality could not deny. And I've been, you know, practicing it ever since. So that was the, you know, the beginning of my meditation journey. And um, I, I think, you know, the first changes I noticed um, after starting to meditate were of a gradual, you could say change in priorities. I became less concerned with conformance to the societal norms of my peers at the time who seemed only interested in partying, drinking, doing drugs because we were young after graduating from college, you know, when you're not in the work environment. And I completely lost the desire to do those things in just the first few weeks, and have not really engaged in them since, and perhaps more importantly, I began to notice that um, I react less to the things that would upset me, or take me out of balance. It started out, I would say, at first I could actually see when I started to react to something more clearly, but couldn't necessarily stop it. And then but at least I was noticing it and I wasn't just doing it on autopilot. And then it evolved to the point where I could see when I was starting to have a reaction to something outside of myself. And because I could see it, it would then recede and not really manifest and make me upset. So eventually the things that used to upset me lost their hold on me and I just stopped reacting to them at all. And I noticed that a very tangible, baseline of calm and inner balance was being established through meditation that was not easily unsettled.
0: That's really beautiful. That's an amazing experience and journey that you've shared with us, David. So David, in one of your interviews, you mentioned that yours is a deadline oriented business, yet you encourage people working with you to leave workplace not too late because you value the fact that it requires some bit of detachment and freshness to be creative and in your industry, you know, you're valued to be creative. In today's world where everything is about going faster, doing more, it's important to understand from someone as successful as you about the importance of cultivating the habit to slow down from time to time. So, if you'd like to speak to that or to any other challenges that are unique to your profession and where you find meditation can yes. help,
1: um, I think you know, it, I, my profession is particularly deadline driven. Um, it's, it's um, you know, in, we're, we get inculcated into that culture in school by pulling all-nighters before doing presentations uh, that are attended by a jury. And so there's a lot of pressure. And, you know, anyone who's worth their salt in a creative profession will think, well, I can't stop until the deadline because I can always get better. You know, so I was, you know, uh, I I could say conditioned uh, to that kind of approach to my profession. And of course, it's, when you graduate from school and you get into the actual profession, it's even more that way uh, because there's money involved and there are, are, are deadlines that that cost money. So um, and I, I guess you know, for the first few years that I was practicing, um, you know, my firm was entering a lot of design competitions, which is another layer of of pressure and effort. And um, and I, I began to meditate shortly after that. And to start to juxtapose the the impact of of pace and deadline, not only in my professional life, but in every aspect of my life against what I was feeling in meditation and which was a very calm baseline that helps you not to react. And I think that you uh, over time, that Became that the sense of that of that and the tangibility of that state became stronger and stronger. So that as I began to uh, rise in the ranks and to manage people and to uh, to try to help them in their professions, uh, you know, I tried to take what I learned and just to to share that with them in the sense. To, to help them to create breaks. So, like in my staff, I don't like people to work through lunch. It's endemic in this profession. And in many professions, people sit and shovel food at their desk while they're working. And it's not, you know, it's it's not actually healthy to do that for the body and even for our, our sense of work-life balance. So I I try to inculcate in my staff the notion of taking a, a break at lunch, getting out of the office. And spending time just, you know, with your attention not focused on something that is using your brain and the activity of thinking, and the application of will uh, that it takes to do so many of our professions today, and you know, we don't, as a as a rule, advocate as a standard of uh, a standard default working a lot of overtime either. You know, if we have a deadline come up. Um, for a special project, of course, we work late, and you know that's part of this profession. But I think it, that is not our standard default to week in, week out, have staff working overtime. And you know, because in, in a creative profession, you you have to be fresh and to be able to channel that creativity when you're when you're all fagged out as you've been working several nights in a row, you can't do that as effectively. And When you work in a profession where solving creative problems is a daily effort, sometimes tapping fully into that creative well can be hit or miss. And on a personal level, I find that meditation allows me to tap into something that is beyond the realm of my own experience, like what I studied in school or what I look in magazines as the latest trends in architecture. You could call it, you know, a wellspring of inspiration that comes from something beyond ourselves, which I feel meditation allows me to connect with. So if I'm trying to solve a problem, meditation allows me to penetrate through to the crux of a solution more easily without the usual endless analysis and spinning over thinking that, especially when we're tired, and we've been working too many hours is, is a very strong tendency. So it's, it's, I could say it's like being able to grasp the essence of something quickly and arrive at a solution because you're looking at the problem from maybe a thousand feet height rather than in the minutia of it. And, and I think that's applicable to any profession, not just a creative pursuit, because we all face problems in our professional life. And when we get too close to them, and we have our blinders on and we're using the conditionings of how we've always approached things sometimes we cannot see the most creative or the most uh, enlightened solution to a problem that we can get when we when we meditate and we put our attention inside and we draw from something that is not just a byproduct of our thinking uh, if that makes sense
0: I wish you know so many of us knew that aspect about ourselves as well because in our minds you know we think if we slow down or if we stop you know we're losing time we're losing time and we could have used that time in doing something more but only if we knew you know what you just shared that how it helps in its own yes, way to just absolutely. slow down and you know another confusion we go through is you know between the two terms the quality of life and standard of living now while standard of living refers to the level of monetary wealth material goods and necessities available to an individual which is primarily based on income, quality of life, on the other hand, is still a subjective measure that measures happiness. And I did try to research a bit. The WHO also defines quality of life as an individual's perceptions of their position in life in context of the culture and value systems in which they live and in relation to their goals and expectations. Now, the problem with the lack of clarity about the difference in these two terms is that we start prioritizing things differently and then chasing them accordingly. So the question now that I want to ask is that what according to you constitutes a good quality of life and is it dependent on one's standard of living? And how does meditation help anyone improve their quality of life?
1: Yeah, good question. I think it's one that faces, you know it doesn't matter what culture, what country, what language you speak. Um, it, it, it's something that we all face. And, and I think that we're, we're conditioned from a very early age by our education, by our language, our culture, the belief system of our parents to have a certain view of the world. And I think in the modern times, um, you know, the entrepreneurial influence in the world is very strong. We're taught to chase after the latest great thing um, and that getting that will make us happy. And we, we measure ourselves relative to others and what they have because we, we live in a very material society. And e- even body image today you know, is becoming a thing where we look at ourselves as an object and we, we try to sculpt and shape ourselves in comparison to other people. And we start treating ourselves as material things. So it's become, I think, endemic to our culture. And I think it it comes from uh, dwelling in the realm of the relative versus the absolute. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, Language, culture, education, they vary and are different for everyone. Um, There's no necessarily common thread across the globe for that, whereas the things that are absolute are true for everyone. Let's say the unconditional love for our children, or if we see someone in trouble, the compassion that wells up and the desire to help these are things that are are absolute emotions they're not they're not conditional they're not relative to someone else they are they're just pure. And I, I think when we begin to meditate, we begin to touch what is absolute in ourselves and we begin to transcend the boundaries of what we've been conditioned with and what is different for everyone. Because, I mean, some people are taught that education is very important. Some people are taught that money is very important. Some people are taught that health is very important. It could be different for everyone. But when we meditate, we touch that aspect of ourselves that is unconditional, that is not dependent on anything outside of ourselves. We begin to touch that part of ourselves that is absolute. And once we begin to do that, we find that our priorities change. You could say that, you know, I could say that meditation taught me that there are many things in life that are completely beyond our control. And you can let your life be constantly affected by those things and be in a perpetually unsettled state or not. And there are so many things in life that are 50-50 proposition. Do I get that plum job? Which means a, you know, a raise and an increase in salary and, and um, other, things, other material things that I can have in, at home. They either go your way or they don't. And if they don't go your way, you're upset at least half the time. I think once I could see this clearly, I, I decided that this was no way to live life. And that the development of an inner state that is peaceful, balanced, and gave me the ability to develop the quality of, of witnessing the dramas of life rather than constantly reacting to them, that my neighbor got a better car than I have, would be a better way to live on a daily basis. I, I noticed also that I became more confident and compassionate without the past expression of competition, ego, or arrogance and that I was more willing to stand firmly for my principles without fear of judgment or reprisal or a risk to my reputation or standing in the world. In other words, my self view was not dependent upon something outside of myself. What I have, where I live, what I drive, And I think through meditation we become more sensitive and aware of the principle of collective benevolence rather than perhaps just the needs of the individual um, or established precedents that maybe don't relate to the good of the whole. Um, We see this particularly in the pandemic where we're all in the same boat. We're all faced with the same problems. And I've seen a new dawn of compassion in people because of that common thread that runs through everyone. Where we, you know, there's something that, you know, we're, we're now thinking more about, you know, by wearing a mask or doing these things to keep from infecting others, the benevolence of the whole and not just ourselves. So I think even though it's a very difficult time, it has brought about changes that I think are good
0: true. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, these kind of uh, situations just help us look for deeper meanings and higher awareness of the self. And I wish, you know, more of us could learn to value the right things in life. And also, you know, quite interesting was a study that was carried out over several years. It was done on 195 spinal cord injured men. And at the time that the research was done, they had all been injured at least 20 years. And researchers concluded with significant data showing that people with injuries reported a higher quality of life. And as you would imagine, you know, many people were surprised by this. The findings were that compared with non-disabled men, fewer of those injured men thought material comforts, work, holding high positions, were important, and more of the injured men felt relationships with relatives, learning, creative expressions, quiet leisure activities were important.
1: Monica, the pandemic has taught people what they can do without, uh, you know, and and I think that's. A good thing, uh, because it's it's caused a, a distillation process to occur in the priorities of everyone across the globe. Um, when you learn what you can do without, and you learn that your connection to other people, because all of this isolation that we've encountered has been, you know, it's affected mental health. It's caused so many repercussions in, in, uh, in individuals that, you know, are feeling isolated and feeling suicidal and, and all all of these psychological problems that have come about as a result. And I think that people have generally come to understand that our relationships to each other um, are more important than the things that we have. And, you know, I, I personally, you know, from just not going anywhere for for such a long time, it's really distilled things for me. And I think that process has happened for just about everyone in varying degrees.
0: So true, absolutely. Who would have thought that, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So also, David, now that you've been teaching meditation for several years, you know, that makes me believe that you've been exposed to a wide range of individuals with a wide range of personalities who come in with their own strengths and challenges. But from that kind of experience and exposure that, you know, you've had with human beings, would you have any message, any final message for the listeners that you think might be important for the people today, given the strong divisions amongst people in the US that we've seen?
1: Yeah, I think all of us have gone through, in America, um, a painful period, um, particularly after what we saw on January sixth, And it's it's caused me to reflect a lot um, about why this is, you know, where does it come from? And I, I think, you know, as we talked about earlier, each of us are inexorably shaped by the environment of which we are a part. Our language, our culture, our politics and belief systems are all influenced by where we were born and how we are brought up to view the world. And this process of, again, relative conditioning affects all of us in varying degrees. And is a major factor in the emergence of what I feel is the age of division in which we find ourselves today, I think the polarized positions so endemic in today's world are due to our identification and acceptance of a relative worldview. And until we are able to move from what is relative into the realm of absolute within us, like we discussed earlier, the notion of us and them will continue unabated. I think when you strip away the veneer of culture and language, through meditation, the realization that every human being is in essence, a part of an interconnected family becomes increasingly apparent. Um, you know, Each time we access the state of thoughtless awareness, which is what happens when you meditate is you are in a state where you're absolutely aware, but you're without thought. And when you enter that state through the practice of Sahaja Yoga meditation, we're connecting Uh, to what is absolute within us and tapping into what Carl Jung described as the collective unconscious. In this state, we can see clearly that all human beings are interconnected and that each of us has an inner energy, which is common to everyone. And I think in this age of point counterpoint, scoring the latest soundbite to be picked up by, you know, a hungry media. It's time for humanity to realize that our true differences are less than skin deep. And the positions that we so vociferously defend are no more than constructs of a relative world. Uh, like you could say a thick fog in a, in a dense forest that the rays of the sun can easily dispel. And I think meditation is that light that we need to overcome this problem
0: that is really such a beautiful message and i wish it you know reaches many of us and i really wish that you continue that good work of you know spreading this uh, message and sharing that knowledge of meditation for free as you as you've been doing for so many years this was definitely a very insightful discussion with you today, David, and I really wish for more opportunities of speaking to you in the future on you know maybe different topics and different messages that relate to us human beings.
1: Thanks so much, Monica. I, I really enjoyed spending the time with you and your listeners.
0: <laughs> Thank you, David.